Well, as we're jumping in to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, and I'd love to encourage you, some Sundays, <clears throat> like, um, like today, um, because we've got two Sundays set aside for this chapter, um, I've got kind of the, the luxury of reading the whole chapter at the beginning, which is my preference. Um, I'd love to encourage you um, any Sunday, every Sunday, when you're coming in, you have a pretty good idea of where we are, and, and you could guess at that. Um, if you don't have otherwise, you could get a pretty good plan. So, so what I would encourage you to do is, is um, do like, you could, you could if, when you get up on Sunday morning, read this passage, read through this chapter, make notes. I hope he talks about this. I wish he would comment on that. And, and if it doesn't happen, then you can send me an email and say, hey, could you mention or comment or, or reference or whatever? I think that'd be really cool. Or um, uh, you could listen to it, like the, you could use one of the mini Bible podcast things, and while you're in the shower or driving down the road or whatever, listen to the um, listen to the passage as well. It's in preparation. But today we do get the opportunity to read all the way through it. You've got a copy of God's Word with you. You can follow along. Um, it'll be on the screens. It's also um, there will be copies of it in front of you if you would like to look there. That would work too. <clears throat> so I'm going to start in chapter 23 of First Samuel in verse one. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack those Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. <clears throat> David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself up by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it has told me he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides. 
And come back to me with sure information, then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. When Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Angedi. All right, there you go. So this is the, this is the narrative, the next section in the narrative of the account of the rise of Israel as a um, as a nation with a king. So we, we met Samuel several, you know, 23 chapters ago. We met Samuel and the rise of Samuel as the priest, the fall of the priesthood and the judges as the leaders of Israel, the rise of the kings, the first king being Saul. And now we're watching the fall of Saul and the rise of the second king, David. Um, and this is the understanding in the, in the midst of the historical context, as we, as we just unpack the historical context, we're also looking for what is being taught to us, what is being shown to us through the character of the, care, of the people who are here, what is being shown to us through the decisions they're making, what do we need to learn from these passages, which is why we're all here to, to kind of unpack this together. So God has, we start with, um, it tells us in chapter 23, verse 1, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Now, there's already a lot here to unpack right off the bat. Um, and so here we have this weird situation. God, so David was in a totally safe place. He was in the stronghold, the fortress of Moab. So these are relatives of his. Now, I remember his great-grandmother was a Moabite. And so David has gone to the Moabite kingdom, and he's safe there. He's in their stronghold. Saul can run all around Israel if he wants to. David and his people and his family are safe in Moab. And God sends a prophet, Gad, and tells David, leave the strongholds of Moab and then go to the forests right smack in the middle of Judah, which is right in the danger zone when it comes to trying to escape Saul. This is a terrible idea from a safety perspective. I think it's a key thing for a key message for us to notice something, and we see this all throughout Scripture, especially in our culture. Our culture, the Western culture, the American culture, has placed too high a premium on safety. We've taken the concept of safety and we've begun to honor it above its appropriate place. Here we have a situation where David is perfectly safe, and a lot of the therapists in the world would tell David that he needs to draw a boundary with God. And when God says to go to someplace where you don't feel safe, you should tell God, I don't feel safe there, so I'm not going, right? That would be the religion of therapy, which is the, one of the modern two religions in America. Politics is the other one. Um, both of which are great things, but terrible religions. Um, they make for terrible religions. I recommend um, both of politics and therapy as great parts of your life, but not as religions. So this is part of the issue we're dealing with. We have a culture that has said, hey, you feel uncomfortable? That probably means you're feeling unsafe. We now use those terms interchangeably. You feel uncomfortable, that's a safety issue. You should honor your own sense of safety above everything else. That is not biblical. Our culture honors safety and now worships it versus what God does, um, which is sometimes call us out of safety into harm's way. 
We see it all throughout Scripture. And we're going to get a sense now here in this passage of why. Safe sometimes is not the best option. When we, uh, when we were hit with the pandemic of COVID a couple of years ago, one of the things I wanted to dig into quickly, um, one, what do you do with a church when it's closed? Um, that's one. But two was, what do Christians do in times of pandemic? And what I discovered was, historically, what Christians do in times of pandemic and cultures is we go and we serve and we die. That seems to be the pattern. And we didn't know early on, is COVID going to be like another cold, another flu that comes through and wipes out a few million people worldwide like the colds and flus do every year? Bad enough. And are we willing to risk that unsafety? Or is it going to be something much more dangerous? Is it going to be like uh, the plague that wiped out one in every three people? Well, there were Christians. What did the Christians do during the plague? Well, I'll tell you, they went to the people and they served them until they got sick and died as well. That's what Christians do in times of pandemic. That's obviously not safe. And yet, it was the role that God called Christians to, because we're not afraid to die. So we can serve and serve to the point of death. It was striking to me years ago when I learned that missionaries in the 1600s and the 1700s and the 1800s often traveled overseas to go to their mission field, and they carried their supplies in a casket, because they knew that's how they were coming home. To go into a situation knowing, this is what this is going to cost me. I heard years ago a Buddhist parable, which struck me as intriguing, um, and one that Jesus would put a stamp of approval on. It was, um, it was the idea that uh, three men are in a desert, wandering in the desert, and they come to a wall in the desert, and the first one climbs the wall and lets out a whoop of joy and jumps in. The second one climbs the wall, does the same thing. The third one climbs the wall and sees that there's this beautiful oasis here in the desert with enough food and enough water for them to stay alive forever. So he immediately climbs down off the wall and goes back out into the desert to find other lost people and send them to the oasis. And in many ways, this is, this is what Jesus teaches us about being ambassadors, about taking up our cross every day. This is the kind of thing that God calls us to. Remember that Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit himself to face Satan. There's nothing safe about that sentence. Um, safety is sometimes not the highest priority. And now we have some idea why God sent David back into Judah. Because God knew that the people of Keilah were about to be in harm's way. And God is going to send David. God was already putting David in a position to shepherd his people. And I think it's a key thing for us to ask ourselves, which is more important to me? You might say to yourself, self, I don't feel safe with a room full of two-year-olds. And you'd be right. I don't feel safe with seventh grade boys. You probably shouldn't. This is, this is the reality of, of, of what it means to minister to people. There are people that I feel like need to be ministered to, but it makes me feel uncomfortable the thought of doing that. I'd love to join this church, but I feel uncomfortable at coming up in front of a group of people. I need to be baptized, but being in front of a group of people and being dunked in the water makes me feel uncomfortable. Understandable. That's uncomfortable. And yet, it's the type of thing that God calls us to. That when we say, but that sounds uncomfortable, that would not be my first choice, or that would not be my preference. It's the same kind of thing. Am I, am I too afraid? Is that the line that I'm going to draw with God? Is that the boundary I've drawn with God? No, God, this far, but no further. Incidentally, in case you misunderstand me, we don't have the right to draw boundaries with God, in case that's unclear. Um, it's our, his life, not ours. So now we have the Philistines attacking a little city, Keilah, and where is Saul? As God's enemies are attacking God's people, Saul, God's king, is in the business of attacking God's people. 
We assume this is going on simultaneously to when Saul is busy slaughtering all the priests at Nob. While David is going to now go fight for the people, Saul is attacking the people. And who are they anyway? They came to David. Is it his, is it his ragamuffin, motley crew group of people who have gathered around him? Is that who it is? Is it the people of Keilah have sent a messenger? Is it the prophet Gad again? We really don't know. But isn't it interesting that they came to David, not Saul? Isn't it interesting that there's a problem, Keilah's in danger, so we need to go find someone who can save us. Let's go find, you know, that guy who's running and hiding in the woods with about 400 people. That's who we ought to go to, because they trust him over Saul, which rightfully so. By the end of this chapter, Saul himself is going to lead an army toward Keilah to attack it, which is wild. No, Keilah, by the way, just as a side note, Keilah, any, anytime you hear of a city that is, is in the, what's called the Shephelah in Israel. So if you remember, if you remember the, the coastline of Israel is where the Philistines lived. And the Philistines, in case you've forgotten, these are the Klingon Viking pirates of history, okay? They love to fight and they can't wait to fight and they're looking forward to fighting you and taking everything you have. Or if they die in the process, that's fine too. The fight is good either way. They're fine with it. As long as they get to fight. That's the, that's the Philistines. They live on the coastland. And the people of Israel live up in the mountaintops. They live in the fortified mountains in Judah. In between is this hill country called the Shephelah. And, and the rabbis have always taught throughout history that the Shephelah is dangerous. The Shephelah is dangerous for a couple of reasons. not always wise because it may represent compromise. Samson was from the Shephelah. That you go right over here are the pleasures of the pagan countries. They're beautiful people. They're fine things that they've stolen from other cultures around the world. And if we live here, we can kind of have one foot in the holy country and God's people and kind of have one foot over here in the pagan country. And it's kind of cool to keep one foot in each place. The danger is, of course, that, that at some point the pagan people decide they want your wheat and they're going to come take it from you. It's dangerous to, to risk this kind of compromise because it's not safe to do that. There's always teaching about living in the Shephelah over there when we go. <clears throat> um, and here's the deal. They're, they're threshing out their wheat, their barley, their grain. They're threshing something. And this is the most dangerous time for a culture is when they have threshed out their wheat. So, so remember, they, at this point, the people have, have planted and sown the wheat. They have tended it and taken care of it. They have watched over it and protected it. They have now harvested it. And then in order to get the grain, we have a video uh, actually of us being in Nazareth um, and watching. This is Paul for us. He is showing you what threshing wheat looks like. So he should be up on a hilltop. They have their, their threshing room floor too low. But the, see the, the wind blowing the stuff off to one side and what's falling down are the seeds. This is hard, nasty work. No one wants to be doing the threshing of the wheat. So you can imagine the Viking pirate Klingons when, they, when they, they're waiting for the people to be done with all of this and to have these giant stacks of seed. I mean, the only thing more they could do would be to bake bread for them, Right. And this is when the Philistines go like, hey, you know what? Hey, we're going to show up now and we think we want that seed. How horrible to spend all of your earnings and all of your time and all of your money and all of your energy to finally get seed just to have the Philistines come in and go, now that's my seed. And so this is tragic. And time from dying from the war, they may die from starvation. And so God sends them to do this. What does David do? God sends him this message. The people of Keilah need help. What does David do? Does he run for the hills and pursue safety? No. But does he charge blindly, guns blazing without hesitation? He doesn't do that either. It's a good thing for us to hear. Does he take a pole? 
or vote? Nope, that's not where he starts. He doesn't even ask around. None of those are bad things. There are times for running for the hills, and there's times to charge in, and there's times to take a poll, and times to take a vote. But the time comes after asking God. The time for those things comes after inquiring from the Lord. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. This is done right. David does it right. He doesn't always do it right. This time he does it right. It's so great when we get to see him, him or whoever leading this way. So I want you, you're all going to repeat after me. This is a good life rule, good axiom. This is the way it's supposed to be. We're going to stick with this. Step one is always ask God. This is always step one in any given situation, okay? So I'm, I'm going to say step one, and you're going, to, you're going to say ask God. Ready? Okay, so step one. Okay, good. Let's try once more. Step one. Okay, so apparently David asks God and then listens. Now, this is amazing. So Will God lead or respond? What does it look like for David when God leads or responds? If you ask God first, if you do that, if, uh, if you take the first step, which is to... Okay, good. If you do that, then, then what's going to happen next? Okay, okay, let me tell you. I have no idea. I am completely clueless as to what, how God is going to in, interact with that. Are you going to face silence next? Is that the next thing? Is there an impression that you get? Is there a thunderstorm? A dream? Or, or is it words from your spouse? Is it the wise words of a counselor or a mentor or a friend or a guide? Are you drawn to a biblical passage next? Do you hear a voice like many rushing waters? Do you, do you hear a voice that's like a tiny, quiet voice inside of your own head? I don't know. All of those happen in Scripture to different people who speak to the Lord and interact with Him. Sometimes we don't even know, like this one, what was the form of God's response to David? I don't know. I, I don't know what to tell you. But we hear at least all those examples from Scripture. Now, stay away. Try to stay away from the more superstitious ones. Um, over the years, and I, I think God can speak however God wants to speak, I like to stick to the biblical examples if at all possible. I think that's safer. Um, I've known people who are like, they, 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 they think God is guiding them through how many sevens they see on people's uh, license tags throughout the day, for example. I think that's probably not, not a biblically sound way to ask for God's leadership. I mean, okay, maybe, but I think you're, I think you're risking danger when you're looking for some superstitious um, kind of patterns or something like that that you go like, oh, this is how God is. Be, be very wary of that. But understand, God speaks in a lot of different ways. Wouldn't it be cool if God always did it the same way and it was always just absolutely clear? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, that'd be like a robotic religion, not a royal relationship. That's pretty good, wouldn't it? I don't do alliteration often. You should be pleased. That's a, um, uh, the robotic religion versus a royal relationship. All of my relationships are unclear communication. Is it just me? Anybody else have that? I grew up in a very direct family. Our, my family communicates very directly. You, rarely is it unclear what they're looking for from you, okay? Ginger grew up in a very indirect family. They give guidance by asking questions, right? They ask you a question, and that's not a question. It's an instruction. How many times have we run into situations where Ginger's like, hey, I think maybe it's about time to get ready? And I'm like, I, I mean, I probably got 20 more minutes, 30 more minutes. <laughs> 
because I'm not even sure if it's time to maybe all about to get ready, right? There's all types of stuff that I'm like, oh, after 30 years of marriage, I know that means you should already be in the car, <laughs> right? That's what that means. That's, but that's not my family at all. My family with that would be like, oh, probably about time to get up then, right? Like, if, you, if you're supposed to be in the car, my family would say like, why aren't you in the car yet, right? It would be like, that would be the only question that would be asked would be, you should be, this is, why would I suddenly become the perfect communicator when I'm in communication with God? Why would I suddenly become perfectly clear on everything in my communication with God? It is intriguing to me that God doesn't always do it that way. He could be, but this, I think, is part of just trusting and depending on Him and recognizing, by the way, this is one of the cool things, even if we get it wrong, His grace is sufficient. We're not going to somehow mess up everything so badly that, we can't, that He can't make something good from it, as we'll look at in a minute. It's okay. This is my encouragement. We get caught up in going like, oh, I don't know how God's going to speak to me and how if I'm going to fully understand it. I don't know that that's where we typically fall apart with this. It's usually that we don't ask and listen. So I would say, let our job be to ask and listen, and then we'll do our best with whatever he delivers to us when it comes to his communication. His, our role is to be faithful to ask. His, his role is to communicate as he sees fit. So how, how does David ask? What does he want of him? And notice, David is going to have the normal uncertainty that the rest of us have. Very comforting to me. Because David goes to his men and says, I've asked God what we should do. God says you should go down to Keilah and, and rescue those people. And the men say, probably some version like, well, did, did God say we would win? And David's like, you know, I, I didn't ask that part. David, but David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. By the way, this, is, this is part of why I trust Scripture. This is real humans. This is how humans respond to this. Your leader comes. Hey, I know we're in hiding. By the way, remember, he's not super inspiring at this point. Do I have any hikers and campers? Anybody who's spent more than three or four nights out away from a roof and a home and, and all that kind of stuff? Okay. I want you to picture correctly this situation. David and his men have been living out in the wilderness now for several days, maybe weeks at this point. They all smell like smoke. Their, their, their fingernails are just gross. Their hair is matted and nasty. That nice royal robe that Jonathan gave David probably has ember holes in it. It's probably covered with mud. It's been wrapped around him from to sleep in for days after. David is not some, if you're picturing David going to his men like some kind of inspiring Lord, you know, with gold and flashy, like, yeah, stop that. You need to picture David as being this downtrodden, beaten down. He's got huge bags under his eyes because no one can sleep well out in the wilderness like this day after day. And he's coming to them and he's going like, God told me that we should go down and save Keilah. And the men are like, you're kidding, right? I mean, we're barely scraping it together. Here, Saul is hounding us now. We are terrified. We have Saul after us, and you want us to go pick a fight with the Klingon Viking pirates. This is your idea of a strategy. That doesn't sound like something God would tell us to do. And you can imagine David going like, uh, yeah, you're right. Let me ask again. Let me go back. I'm going to ask. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to go back and ask again. And did he say, make sure in this time and ask if we're going to win. Oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. So David goes back. David inquires the Lord again. And the Lord answers, how dare you ask me twice? I'm slapping you down for that. No, that's not at all what God says here. The Lord answered him, arise, go to Keilah. I will give the Philistines into your hand. That angry robo God that you got taught about when you were a kid, you're not going to find him many times in scripture. He's actually not there very often. There is a judgmental side to the, to the God who we see in this Hebrew Scripture, rightfully so, as we've talked about. 
Like, like a, a mother who has lost a child to drunk driving hates drunk driving. So yes, there is, a, there is an angry, judgmental side to God, of course. Anyone who loves condemns. But here in this situation, we see again God gently saying, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I'm telling you, you can go, and I'm going to deliver them into your hands. So 400 broken and bitter men hiding and scraping out an existence in the forest are now going to go to battle against the Viking Klingons. David, not probably very inspiring, more like a broken shepherd as well, but while his flock has questions, they listen to his answers. One of the pastors I listened to with this passage pointed out, good sheep don't already have an answer decided when they go to the shepherd. That was very convicting, and it's a good conviction for all of us. It's okay to have a preference. It's not okay to have a conclusion when we go to the Lord. We often ask for God for answers rather than go to Him with our requests. Answer this the way you see fit. The sheep know the sound of his voice. The sheep spend a lot of time with the shepherd. They are submitting in advance to the shepherd. This may be the key, guys, to what it means to live in a lordship relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. When we say we are Bible-believing evangelical Christians, what does that mean? I think there's a simple test for it. If you knew for sure, if... You knew for sure God was telling you to do something. Would you do it? That's the question. The answer to that is supposed to be always yes. So if God came, if you became absolutely convinced that Scripture teaches pacifism, I'm not saying it does, but I'm saying if you became absolutely convinced of that and you believe that God was telling you no more guns, no more defense, no more locks, no more of that kind of stuff, that you would go, okay. I'll get rid of them all. Would you be willing to do that? Whatever it happens to be, whatever God would call you to, can you say in advance, I've already submitted to whatever your answer is. Now, just clearly give me an answer. I think, I think that's what it means to live in the Lordship with Christ. And David has done that. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. I want you to go to Keilah. You're sure? Yes. Verse 5, David and his men went to Keilah. How cool and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David and his men go. The courage of these ragamuffins matches their shepherd. Courage here, courage means to do what you believe is right, even if you're afraid. In fact, despite your fear. You can't be courageous unless you're afraid. So courage means when you're afraid, you do what's right regardless of the fear that you have. David is not fearless. I think fearless is almost an insult, to be perfectly honest. Fearless is, is just, often just means foolish. He is afraid, but he is willing to do what he believes is right despite his fear. As a leader, it's great to be reminded, and we're all leaders, in our families, in our neighborhood, in our friends, here in our church, that we don't always get to choose who we go to war with. We don't always get to choose who at our side. You're probably, you're, there are probably times when you sit and daydream about a church full of people um, you're, that you're, you're stuck with a church full of people who are limited and imperfect, and you sometimes find yourself daydreaming about a gifted and talented church um, that could all go full, full of people who have it all together. I'm sorry, I said church. I meant a forest full of people. That was not about me. Um, I, I'm kidding. You say the same thing. You're like, man, what would it be like to have a real pastor? That would be cool. Like, what could we do if we had a, that's, that is all of us. And what it means, part of what it means to be a Christian is to go, yeah, we're dysfunctional. We need a savior. We don't have it all together. God 
has to, if I may, make use of broken, ragamuffin kind of people because otherwise we would think maybe this was about us. If we were successful because we were just so brilliant, we would go, wow, isn't it amazing what I've accomplished here? Isn't God lucky to have me? And by the way, when we're negative about the human race, being backwards and fallen and, and foolish and, and, and guaranteed to fail you, that's not meant to be insulting. I hope no one ever hears that as insulting beyond the fact that it's just reality. Like, I think the human race is amazing, and I think God thinks the human race is amazing. He's the one who made us in His image. And yet, honesty also says, like, yeah, if you've met any of us, you recognize, hmm, we're going to let you down. It's going to happen. This is... This is like the dad who asks us to help. Very often we have this image of a God who's just waiting for us to mess up so he can smack us down or bite our heads off. He asks us to get a wrench. We come back with pliers. And so he chews us out and calls us names and says horrible mean things to us because, what are you stupid? I said get wrench. You brought back pliers. And recognize when God sends us to get a wrench, he already knows we're coming back with pliers. He already knows it. If God wanted this sermon to be done right, he wouldn't have me doing it. If God wanted you to, do, to handle your family and your marriage right, he wouldn't have you doing it. If it had to be done perfectly, he wouldn't have asked you, and he certainly would not have asked me. If the things that God needs done perfectly, he does. Creation, redemption, glorification, judgment. We're not allowed to be a part of those. Why? Because we would mess it up. In our best moments, we're his big helpers, like the three-year-old sent to clean their room. He's just going to have to come clean the room after two hours of us making a bigger mess of it most of the time, right? That's because he loves us that much. He lets us be involved with what he's doing. And God is putting David through all of this. We already know God can just send thunder and chase off the Philistines. He's done it before. Why doesn't God just send thunder and chase off the Philistines from Keilah? Apparently, God wants David to do this. There's something about this that is important for God, that David be the one who do it and his men be the one who do it. He's teaching them something. One, I think he's certainly teaching him to be a king. He's teaching him to be a shepherd. He's growing David's character. What he's teaching David to be is more of a Messiah, a Christ figure, an anointed. All Messiah and Christ means is anointed. And David is his anointed one, and he wants him to be his anointed one, more like Jesus. And by the way, that's not special to David. Listen to what Romans 8 tells us. This beautiful passage from Romans chapter 8. Most Christians know one chapter out of the middle of this section. It's important to know the whole thing. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. We can't even do that right. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. So we love that passage, and it's good that we do. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Yes, but notice what his purpose is for us, is to conform us to the image of his Son, to turn us into little anointed messiahs. And really often messiahs get crucified. So for us to engage with the truth that God is working in our life, and that doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable. We're meant to live as anointed ones imperfectly. So we've, we've seen David, the Messiah, shepherd king, saying things like, in, you, in me you will find safety. He's courageous. He leads by courage and by example. He seeks his own shepherd, and then he leads his own flock. 
and the lost sheep are drawn to his voice. We have Saul, the other leader, who says things like, you shall surely die to God's people. He has someone else do his killing for him. He won't even do his own sinning. He gets his people to do his sinning for him. He berates his sheep and he drives them until they run for the hills. The world is way more like Saul. If you haven't been driven to the hills yet by the world, you just haven't been with it long enough. You will, you will eventually discover, like Psalm 63 says, that all these other water sources are dry. And you get tired of eating sand all your life, and you'll turn to Christ. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, um, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself by entering a town that has gates and bars. So now Saul wants to rush to Keilah. I see. I'm so irritated by the way Saul is making decisions right now. Saul is always motivated to attack the anointed ones of God. Saul is, always has to be inspired or instructed to do anything else. Um, it, it strikes me, though, that how, many, how often we have similar excuses to that, that we go, I don't have time to do the things of God. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to listen to his word. I don't have time to whatever. And so, and then, but then if we look at our own lives, we realize, I mean, I do have time to, to scroll through anxiety-inducing or fleshly things when I'm sitting in the bathroom or I'm riding in my car or I'm sitting in front of the television. Like, I really do think that most of the time, I know me, I mean, I'm chief sinner here, that I just get distracted by something else. And it's not like I don't have time for these things. I'm just not choosing to prioritize them. Um, here we have Saul doing the same kind of thing. He prioritizes what is important to him, chasing down David, doing what God wants him to do, or even asking? No. And maybe the most offensive part of this is that Saul assigns this to God. God has delivered David to me. We're actually going to get the exact terminology that God is not delivering David to Saul. That is absolutely not the case. And so again, just to comment one more time on this, and I know we've come up with this before. I don't know about you, but I live in almost quaking fear of assigning something to God like this. It's so scary to me when, to, to, to ever say that. Well, God, I think God is leading us this way. I think God is telling us to do this thing. And, and again, that's assuming I've asked God at all. I'm, I'm, again, I'm back to like David. I forget to do the first thing, which is to... Good, very good. And so I forget to do that too. I'm, I'm, I can imagine God give, getting irritated with how rarely I do that. Hey, hey, Chris, could you come do this for us? Could you come do this talk for us? Could you come speak here or, or do whatever? And I'm like, well, let me look at my calendar. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's open. I can do that. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. And God's like, really? You don't, you don't involve me in this at all? You're just going to go be my ambassador and share my gospel and you didn't want to see if I, I wanted you to go be a part of that? I wrote a note to myself one time as to, I realized one of the things that bugs me is when people who I love and who I want to support and who I want to use the resources that I have to encourage them and support them, when they go rush off and make decisions and they don't involve me. I don't know if any of the rest of you are that way. Like, that bugs me. Like, really? You didn't want to involve me in that? Like, I, would, I wanted to help you with I would have loved to have helped you with that. I would love to get my resources and, and help you with that. That would be really awesome. And God's like, yeah, that stinks, doesn't it? That's really annoying when you love somebody and they don't bother to even get your input before they rush off and start doing things. Man, think of the resources you could, a God could help with. This is our intention, but what we do very often is we end up looking to God and if we, we blame God, the justice of God must be so rightly offended with our injustice. Imagine how much worse when we assign our injustice 
to him. God's telling me to do this. Um, I don't know if you guys run into this in your families, but I run, we run into this in our family all the time. This exact thing. It usually comes under the heading of something like, mom told me it was okay. Anybody else ever run into that with your kids, right? <laughs> They're like, hey, dad, can I go do this? Mom said it was okay. You don't need to ask her. <laughs> I don't, huh? I think I just might then ask her. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? This is, this is, oh, okay. It's, I'll, you know what? I'm going to let you just, I'll let you and mom hang out for a while. I feel like y'all may have something to talk about. Um, that, this, is a, this is a natural thing that we, we want to look to God and get God responsible for the decisions that we're making. Timothy Keller said rightly, if, if your God always agrees with you, you may just be worshiping a, an aggrandized version of yourself, not God. Beware of a God that always agrees with you. Okay. Verse 8, Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David. Um, David, by the way, finds out that, the, that Abiathar, who has come down, has the ephod. The ephod is going to involve those, what I believe now, I've been convinced, I could be wrong, but I've been convinced, are three stones. There's the, the God stone that tells them whether God is speaking, that kind of glows supernaturally. Then there's the yes stone and the no stone. The priest reaches into the breastplate piece, the little pouch that's in there, and pulls out a stone and it's yes or no, and then pulls out the other stone, and it's either glowing or it's not. If it's glowing, that means God is speaking. I think that's how it went. I think just a yes or no stone would have been abused so constantly, they would have been absolutely worthless. And so, so I've got to think there's something more to it than that. So this isn't just the magic eight ball that we shake up and see what God's going to say about things, but it's so similar to that, we just need something to tell us, and I think that's what's going on. The priest comes down there, Abiathar comes down, he's got this. So David asks a series of yes, no questions. Um, is Saul going to come down here? Yes. Is he, are the people going to turn me over to him? Yes. Next week, I want to unpack, take a few minutes and unpack something called middle knowledge just for fun. For those of you who are theology nerds, you'll enjoy it. Um, but that'll be next week. Verse 13, then David and his men who were about 600 arose and departed from Keilah. They went wherever they could. And when Saul heard that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Saul had called the people of Israel together to try to entrap David. And uh, we don't know what happened with those numbers, but David talked to God, got clear insight and left. It tells us at the end of verse 14, as he goes to hide, but God did not give him into his hand. But I want you to look at this phrase, and Saul sought him every day. This is a phrase, and I really appreciate it. David Guzik drew my attention to this phrase in his unpacking of this passage, is that phrase, every day. And, and, and if you take a second and just stop and recognize the exhaustion attached to those two words for a lot of people, Saul is pursuing him every day. And we think about the people who are in our midst, in our families, in our church with chronic illness, depression, parenting, an abuse, abusive or addicted or a deluded person in their life, like maybe sometimes themselves. Uh, temptations, isolation, loneliness. When you're wrestling through those things, every day can be just about the worst phrase in the English language. This idea of facing these challenges and these struggles every day. It's a lot for us to carry, and it's impossible for us to carry alone. The provision that God has for David is to not deliver him into Saul's hand. We're going to see over the next few chapters, a couple of times, it looks like when God even delivers Saul into David's hand. 
And David could end this everyday struggle, but he's not convinced it's what God wants him to do, so he doesn't. The faithfulness of this is shocking to me. The thought that someone could turn off their everyday trauma and choose not to out of faithfulness is amazing. So I want to pray for us, and then I want to read this next little section, um, just a couple of verses to close out our time. So if you will stand. And I would really encourage you that this every day, whatever this every day is in your heart, recognize it seems like God certainly could take that away. And so our, a part of our thing is to ask and listen for why this is in our lives every day. So let me pray, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses. Um, as we have our time of singing um, together here in a moment with invitation, we would inv- I would invite you, if you want to come up and pray about anything, including these things we're about to talk about, or pray about, that would be great, or over in that corner. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, you can do that here in a moment. We had a young lady, uh, this is like four weeks-ish maybe in a row, we had a young lady, another kid come up and tell us um, that she'd put her faith in Christ and wanted to be baptized. Um, God's uh, harvest has been plentiful and exciting for us to get to be a part of these last few weeks. We're so grateful. If that's you as well, that you want to know who God is and and pray, and, uh, or you have done that and want to let us know, we'd love to celebrate that with you. I want to pray in particular for those of us who are facing things every day. Please, God, do not deliver us into the hands of our own temptation, not into the hands of the evil one or of the chronic illness and pain. Don't deliver us into the hands of our addictions or to the toxic people in our lives. Lord, instead, we pray that you would comfort us with your righteous right hand. And that you would send us brothers and sisters to comfort us. Instead, Lord, deliver, those, deliver us to those who would strengthen our hands. Lord, I ask this because you are a good God in your son's name. Verse 15 says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. The very words of God.